planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? higher side chatters we know the world is a stranger place than it might seem on the surface with unknown depths few dare to explore and when the stakes for spending too much time looking behind the veil are madness and paranoia who can really blame them but there is a rich history of artists musicians writers and creative types feeling as though they are being compelled to do what they do that they find themselves being more conduit than creator more vessel than virtuoso and fans of hp lovecraft's work have battled over this very point for years are there hidden truths or unconscious insights woven throughout the work of the father of supernatural horror fiction? Well, today's returning guest Peter Lavenda thinks so, and by the end of today's show, you might be inclined to agree. Peter, of course, is the author of many books, including the Great Sinister Forces series we talked about in his last appearance, which explores this possibility of supernatural influence in some of America's most trying times. From a deeper exploration of the Salem witch trials and the potential influence of ancient Indian burial grounds on a young Charles Manson, to the alchemical interests of America's founders and that infamous seance to channel the Council of Nine in that old farmhouse in Maine. Yes, Peter Lavenda has helped to make me see the significance and synchronicities between places, names, and dates that really make one wonder about the idea of ethereal puppet masters and just how much influence they might really have. His latest book is actually his first published novel entitled The Lovecraft Code, which branches off the infamous Call of Cthulhu and uses a fictional narrative as the means of exploring what may be some very profound truths. It's a wild ride and I'm psyched to have him back to talk about it. A man who finds the connective tissue you didn't know was there, the surgeon of synchronicity, Peter, my man, welcome back to the higher side. <laughs> Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, you got it. The surgeon of synchronicity. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. I try to be creative, but it is getting harder all the time. And I got to thank you for doing this because you become one of my favorite authors tackling many interesting subjects in unique ways. And of course, the Lovecraft Code is no exception. A lot of listeners probably understand this idea that truth can sometimes be told easier in fiction. It's why we love things like The Matrix and now Westworld, because they address concepts that are hard to get at directly, but might still be pretty profound. Is that some of the reasoning behind why you went with a novel this time? Basically, yes. The idea was to provide this fictional narrative in order for people to get involved with concepts that if I had done this in nonfiction, and I've been doing it in nonfiction for a long time, sometimes the concepts are hard to grasp because there's no, there's no bonding with the issues. You know, it's sort of very intellectual. It's on a different plane. The beauty of fiction is that you can bring some of this very heady intellectualizing down to a more visceral level, to an emotional level, where you can suddenly see why things are important and what the possibilities might be. I think that was the whole idea behind science fiction in its infancy anyway, was to take some of these hard-to-grasp scientific ideas about space and time and time travel and space travel and all of that and try to make it more real, try to put human beings in the middle of what until then was you know, scientific speculation. But to put us in the middle there to, to say, OK, if this is true, this is how our lives will be affected. 
And I think that with the Sinister Forces books that you mentioned and the other books, I've been saying all of this, but I felt that maybe a novel might be a way to introduce some of these ideas in a way that people would more easily identify with and understand and could suddenly see the connections falling into place. Mm -hmm. Great points. And I totally agree. And so for the longest time, I've just kind of considered Lovecraft to be like Edgar Allan Poe 2.0. But what is it about him and his writings that intrigued you so much? Well, there are a number of things. I didn't read Lovecraft until very late. I mean, I wasn't one of these sort of teenage readers of, you know, gothic horror stuff. The The closest I got to anything like that probably was Dennis Wheatley. So I read the Dennis Wheatley occult novels, you know, The Satanist and The Devil Rides Out and To the Devil a Daughter. And I liked those because they were based on real people and real events. Dennis Wheatley and Ian Fleming had both known Aleister Crowley personally. Uh, had considered using Crowley in some fashion during World War II when they both worked for British intelligence. So there was this idea that Wheatley had direct contact and direct knowledge of some of the occult organizations that Crowley was involved with, the ritual magic, and the interface between that and politics. So when I was a teenager, I was reading Wheatley more than anything else for that reason, because I had that connection. And I think that's what I was trying to do in the Lovecraft Code also, this idea that you know, I, I've seen a lot of this stuff up close and personal, and I've seen these things go on. Let me try to put this in a narrative that people could relate to. So I didn't, I bypassed Lovecraft for years. I started to read Lovecraft seriously recently, I would say in the last, oh, 10 or 15 years, maybe something like that, 20 years, I'm not exactly sure. I think around the time I was writing Sinister Forces, I kind of rediscovered Lovecraft and took a deeper interest in him. And then realize that, you know, Lovecraft is accused of, you know, hyperbole, purple prose, and, you know, going to that well way too often, you know, <laughs> these unseen monsters that are lurking behind every shadow. And then I realized, studying Lovecraft, that his family history was really rather strange right there. And I began to look at ideas that maybe Lovecraft's upbringing had a much more direct impact on his fiction than we, we realize. His father had gone insane, mm. probably due to syphilis. Uh, he was a traveling salesman, and, and something happened to him. His mind snapped, and he died when Lovecraft was quite young. But then his mother began to develop all sorts of neuroses and psychoses. At one point, she's wandering through the house and you know talking to unseen things behind walls and all of that. I mean, Lovecraft was living with this, was living with basically characters from his fiction. And at the same time, Lord Lovecraft was an atheist, a very committed atheist, someone who hated religion and who loved science and was uh, terribly devoted to scientific principles and looked down on superstition and looked down on religion. And yet here he is writing, you know, texts that would become some of the most uh, formidable explanations of the ancient alien theories and, you know, some of the original material that von Daniken and others after him would pick up. But Lovecraft is writing about this, about, you know, maybe there were people on this planet before us. Maybe they're coming back. Maybe there are people on the planet who can open a gate and let them in. All of these concepts Lovecraft is writing about with one hand, and on the other, he's poo-pooing the entire thing, mm -hmm. you know. There was a kind of a schizophrenia in Lovecraft's approach, it would seem to me. And this fascinated me. Like, what's this all about? Is it possible, for instance, to be an atheist and still believe that, there are you know, alien beings who are controlling the situation on our planet or had some major impact on our planet. 
Of course, the answer is yes. You don't have to believe in religion to believe in aliens, right? Mm -hmm. These things don't come from necessarily the same source. That's another subject for another day. But <laughs> for Lovecraft, in his writing, he was identifying various cults that really did exist, like the Yazidi, for instance, and other groups, and tying them into this worldview that he had. And so I started to take a closer look. And when I did that, I realized that Kenneth Grant, the English magician, was doing the same thing, was connecting Lovecraft to Aleister Crowley and to ritual magic in general, using Lovecraft's characters and his themes as if they were real and exploring that possibility. And that was fascinating as well. And then I realized that Grant seemed to have missed something in all of his work and all of his research on Crowley and on Lovecraft, and that is that Lovecraft's most famous story, the one I based the novel on, The Call of Cthulhu, is based on very specific names, dates, and places, right? Mm -hmm. Lovecraft is kind of unique in that. He really does insist that this is what happened on this day. He gives date, month, and year. I mean, he's, he's very explicit as to when things took place. And I find that also to be fascinating. So I started to deconstruct that. And that's when I discovered that, you know, Lovecraft's famous group of uh, worshippers of Cthulhu in the bayous in the swamps outside of New Orleans in Louisiana, this weird ritual took place on Halloween in 1907. And that date signified something to me. I mean, it jogged my memory, and I started going back over other material, and I realized that Aleister Crowley wrote his famous holy books on exactly that day, mm. on October 30, 31st, and November 1st, 1907. At the same time that cult was operating in New Orleans in Lovecraft's fantasy, one that he wrote 10 years after that, no more, almost 20 years later, Lovecraft is writing about this scene, and Crowley actually was living it. And in the holy books that Crowley was writing, he uses a lot of the same imagery that Lovecraft would later use in The Call of Cthulhu. And I, I would look at the two paragraphs, like side by side, what they were writing, and it was stunning hmm. that Lovecraft was essentially channeling something that had happened to Crowley 20 years previously. And, of course, I wrote The Dark Lord, you know, a nonfiction book based on comparing Lovecraft and Crowley and, and, some, and Grant and some of the other material. So I realized Lovecraft was sort of telling us in The Call of Cthulhu, as you mentioned in the opening, that sensitive people, artists, writers, musicians, may actually be seeing things that are taking place before the rest of us do. Mm -hmm. They may be sensitive to weird phenomenon that's underneath the surface, the sinister forces that I wrote about. And Lovecraft, being an artist himself, as much as he wanted to be a scientist and an atheist, Lovecraft was a writer, was an author, was, a, was an imaginative, creative person. He was one of those very people he was writing about. And I believe that in The Call of Cthulhu and The Dunachora and some of the other stories, he's actually prefiguring what's going to happen later. He's seeing something that's taking place. He's sensitive to it, whether he wants to admit it or not. Mm -hmm. I think that's an amazing perspective, and it does add some excitement to his stories. And I, I do like his stories, but I have to say I do know some diehard Lovecraft fans that rolled their eyes at me when they heard it was going to be a topic on my weird stoner conspiracy show. <laughs> they just don't see the connection. But is there anything more that can be said to help make that case for some of those skeptics that there was some unconscious reporting or something real? There's these connections with Crowley, but is there anything else that might help nudge people or move the needle in the direction of 
taking it seriously that there is something more to them than just good stories. Well, as I mentioned briefly, it was Lovecraft who really set the stage for so much that was going to follow. If it hadn't been for Lovecraft and his stories about Cthulhu and about all the other characters in the so-called mythos, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have had The Morning of the Magicians by Pauls and Bergier in 1960. We wouldn't have had Eric von Daniken in 68 or, you know, the ancient alien stories on the History Channel and, you know, all of that stuff going on. Giorgio Tsoukalos and, you know, all of his guys. I mean, all of this would not have been. I mean, Lovecraft saw it and wrote about it and essentially kind of warned us about it. And he did it in fiction. He didn't do it in nonfiction. His nonfiction is kind of predictable. And, you know, he has a lot of correspondence with a lot of people. He's sort of, you know, arrogant in, in some cases. He's definitely pretty racist for most of his life. <laughs> and he had all of these other issues going on. But with all of that, I think because of that hothouse atmosphere in which he was raised, he was able to basically become a medium for these ideas. Lovecraft, if you only view him as as a writer of pop fiction, of gothic horror, as they say it, or pseudo-gothic horror. I mean, some people argue with me over the gothic horror label. But if they look at Lovecraft only as this guy who wrote for Weird Tales and a writer who's been sort of dismissed in this country as below par and subpar, just a kind of hack author, you're not going to see what's really taking place. Joyce Carol Oates, of all people, wrote you know, and edited a collection of Lovecraft stories. I mean, Joyce Carol Oates is not a lightweight, you know, in terms of academic literature and the modern, you know, literati of New York. She actually saw the value in Lovecraft and decided that she would, you know, author, you know, and edit a collection of his work. In Europe, Lovecraft is praised, you know, but then so is Jerry Lewis and, you know, <laughs> David Hasselhoff. So, you know, I don't know what we could say about Europe, but they do. They, they have this reverence for Lovecraft because they think that Lovecraft gave voice to these cosmic sort of fears and uncertainties that we have. Maybe he did it inexpertly, according to, you know, strict literary standards, but he did it. He did it when no one else was doing it. Everybody else was writing, you know, sort of predictable science fiction monster stories. Lovecraft went a step further. He was trying to tie his vision into something more real, you know, a very real sense that a, that a scientist or an astronomer might have of looking at the world and realizing it's not as stable as we think it is. It's not as predictable or as manageable. It's not subject to our control. The universe does not love us. <laughs> you know, the universe is out to get us if we let it. And that was Lovecraft's approach. Now, there's a lot of people who would argue with that. It's all cool, man. You know, you know, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Lovecraft was not one of those. Lovecraft was saying, look out. There's something dark out there. There is a hidden threat. In, in the world, in the universe, and we have to confront this thing head on. And he associated it with ritual magic. He associated it with, you know, performing rites in the jungles or in the forests, you know, to ancient pagan deities. To Lovecraft, society and civilization was the bulwark against all of this stuff. But at its heart, there was a dark streak, and religion was part of that dark streak. Religion was a way in which this darkness would get into us, would start to infest everything because religion at its heart grew out of pagan concepts. And this is what I think bothered Lovecraft very much and made him very sensitive. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, I could see where people would say, Lovecraft, are you kidding? You know, what is that all about? But, you know, when I started writing the novel, and I started writing the novel some time ago, it's changed a lot in the last few years because of the political situation. But I've, 
I began to see what Lovecraft was was writing about. If you really look at the the resurgence of all sorts of religious fanaticism, and I don't just mean from the Middle East and from you know Islamic quote unquote terror groups, but just in general, this kind of intensity that's coming out as a kind of reaction against materialism and a reaction against science or a reaction against technology. You see what Lovecraft was really afraid of. And he didn't understand, I think, the roots of this problem. He didn't understand it as maybe it was colonialism that contributed to some of this. You know, the idea that the religions of other people are worthless, their beliefs are superstition, our beliefs are are good, they're okay, they're scientifically, you know, justifiable or something. Lovecraft didn't, you know, Lovecraft saw a whole different world. He saw that the world that had been the colonies of Great Britain and of Spain, Portugal, the United States, Netherlands, all these colonies had people that did not believe the way the Europeans did. And there were more of them. And they were rising up in protest and rising up against the colonial powers. When Lovecraft was writing, World War I had taken place. The Middle East was in chaos. Lots of parts of the world were in chaos. From my point of view, World War I never ended. We're still fighting World War I. It was just, you know, a calendar change, but it wasn't really anything else. We're still fighting those conflicts. And I think Lovecraft saw that as part of the problem. He thought that, you know, their belief systems, the quote-unquote other belief systems, were a threat to science, to technology, to, you know, the Western way of life. And he gave voice to these concerns in his books with, with you know, in no uncertain way. I mean, you can actually sit there and, and read it from that perspective and read Lovecraft's works as a critique, you know, of the colonial peoples and of how we should, you know, support colonialism, basically, and keep everybody else down. So these things are interesting to me. They're fascinating. And if we take his stories and we update them to the 21st century, we can see how nothing much has changed as far as the basic themes are concerned. Just the names of the players may have changed, and sometimes not even then. But for the most part, the themes remain the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a great framing of kind of his headspace at that time. And I'm also pretty intrigued by that worldview. A couple of the elements that I've heard you talk about before that kind of convinced me there might be more to this is in some of his correspondence, he mentioned that some of these ideas came from dreams, which is something that gets to that unconscious reporting angle. And apparently, not only did his parents both experience insanity, but he had access to some Freemasonic and secret society material via his grandfather, I understand, which is another element that you could say, well, he had real knowledge that was kind of off the books and he might have incorporated some of that into his stories and worldview. But those are some of the things that I thought struck a chord with me. And also, apparently, when going back to the Crowley connection, as odd as the name Cthulhu is, there's also a synchronicity there, it seems. Yeah. In those very stories, the very texts that Crowley was writing in October 1907, the word Tutulu comes up. And even Crowley didn't know what that meant. He had no clue, but that word came to him with some intensity. And then, of course, like I say, 20 years later, Lovecraft is writing about Cthulhu. And the idea that the same kind of sounds, the same image was coming through in Lovecraft's dreams on the one hand and in Crowley's ritual workings and the trances that he was in on another. I mean, Crowley, Crowley wrote the Book of the Law, that seminal work of his religion, in pretty much the same kind of state. And then that was in 1904. So he's in this mode, Crowley. By 1907, he's now writing 
profusely all of this other material, and it's all kind of spooky and you know gothic in, in its in, in nature. And then in the midst of all of this of black obelisks and everything else, very Lovecraftian imagery, hmm. comes the word Tutulu. And it's so similar to Cthulhu, you, you have to sit there and think, well, there, there's got to be, you know, uh, they're hearing something. They're hearing something legitimate. And, you know, the word Cthulhu itself, I started to explore it in other languages and other disciplines, and it, it comes out in the Lovecraft Code. And I talk about a Tibetan word, Cthulhu, and a Cthulhu is a shaman. You know, it's a priest, and that is exactly what Cthulhu was supposed to be, the high priest of, of the old ones, you know. Mm-hmm. And so in, in Tibet, you have Cthulhu, and he's not only a shaman, he's like an exorcist shaman, and in some cases, a shaman who's come back from the dead. So all of these elements are there in Cthulhu, Cthulhu, and then eventually in Tutulu. And I think that there is the etymological connection may be, you know, fanciful on my part, but the sounds, the phonetic similarities are so strong referring to essentially the same kind of being, the same kind of creature. So I I was fascinated by that. I started to research a lot of different languages to see how this would turn up. And I found an amazing idea that there is some kind of consistency here with this idea. We know that in different cultures, you know, mama and papa are almost universal for mother and father, for whatever reason. In China, almost the same as it is in the West. Languages that have absolutely no relationship to each other and we know that that's probably due to some kind of phonetic development in the child that just happens to be that way. But Cthulhu and Cthulhu and Tutulu, that's, that's stretching. You know, yeah. that's stretching. There has to be some other reason for it. And there maybe there is an organic one. But boy, I'd like to know what that is. Oh, yeah. There's probably a key to something there, you know. Yeah, those are exactly the threads that anybody who is interested in synchronicity and understands the importance that might be behind it or the impact of it, they've got to be interested in a connection like that. (laughs) But as for the Lovecraft Code itself, what can you tell us about the story you wrote and how it relates back to the original call? Yeah, what happened was kind of an accident of information, you might say, the kind of thing that happens to me every once in a while. I was reading The Call of Cthulhu because I was working on the Dark Lord material back then, and I noticed something. I had lived in Rhode Island for a number of years, and I knew Providence pretty well, and Central Falls and Pawtucket and all the that whole area up there. And I started to realize that when Lovecraft is writing about the Angel family, Angel spelled with two L's, I said, well, of course, there's an Angel Street in Providence. It's well known. Lovecraft lived on Angel Street. Hmm. But then something was at the back of my mind with the word Angel, and I thought back I used to live in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, and for a while, in the middle of the night, on television in Malaysia, they would show reruns of Cheers, of all things. <laughs> you know, and Cheers takes place in a bar, and Malaysia is but predominantly a Muslim country, so it was kind of unusual for them to show a show that was based on a bar where alcohol is frowned upon. So, you know, it was weird. <laughs> I was sort of fascinated. I hadn't seen Cheers in, you know, since it had been, since it had originally come out, originally aired. Now I'm watching it in Kuala Lumpur, and I realize that there's a name that keeps popping up as either a writer or a producer or somebody involved with the program, and it's David Angel with two L's. And when I'm researching now back in the States, uh, all the Lovecraft stuff and the Dark Lord, and I'm thinking, you know, there's something there. Let me go and take a look. And I, I started to pull at this thread a little bit. And sure enough, David Angel was on one of the planes that slammed into 
the World Trade Center. His plane hit the North Tower. Mm. He was flying from Boston to Los Angeles, and he died, of course, in that attack on 9-11. So here was David Angel, who had written a lot of the material for Cheers, for Wings, and then for Frasier. Those were three of the shows that he was most closely identified with. And he and his wife both died in the North Tower attack. So I thought, okay, here's an angel dying because of mad Arabs, you know, <laughs> and, and well, literally, yeah, right? Yeah. And this event that has so colored, you know, everything in the last uh, almost 20 years now, it was, it was fascinating. I thought, what is the connection here? I mean, there's a George Gamal Angel, the professor who was investigating the Cthulhu cult in Call of Cthulhu. And then we fast forward 100 years and there's David Angel dying on 9-11. And I thought there's a connection there somehow. There's some kind of a visceral thing. And the story started to germinate from there. What if in this era, in the 21st century, a descendant of that angel family who has some kind of guilt over one of his relatives who died on 9-11, who was appalled by it, who, who was a professor of religion and a believer and somebody who, you know, maybe a little cynical about religion, but was still more or less a, a theist of some kind, now has to see that take place, you know. Mm-hmm. and He's motivated. He's sort of the dark sheep of his angel family, and he's motivated to go and serve in Afghanistan, you know, in 2003. You know, he wanted to go and do something in 2002, 2003. He makes his services available. He speaks Farsi, Arabic, Urdu, Pashto. He has the background in the Central Asian languages, and, of course, they use him, and he's, you know, he feels he's making a contribution. And then at one point, he witnesses something horrible. They bring him back. He's in Iraq with the evasion of Iraq, and he's in Mosul in the north, and he witnesses a massacre of 23 Yazidis by some Muslims who were really angry that the Yazidis did not allow one of their daughters to marry a Muslim, and she went ahead and married a Muslim man. They stoned her. The video of that went out. The Muslims got angry, and they killed 23 Yazidis. So here is our our hero, Gregory Angel, a professor of religion, mm. and he's witnessing this massacre. And that's a real massacre. That massacre took place on that day in that, in that place. I'm following Lovecraft's lead here and using real dates and, and places and events. So here was the real event. This was the attack in Mosul. Now, we hear about Mosul constantly in the news today because of all the fighting around the Islamic State. But back at that time, it was the time when there was the, the great surge and there was the push to get rid of al-Qaeda in Iraq. All of this is going on. And Gregory Angel, my character, witnesses this, and now his faith is completely shaken. He realizes that religions are killing religions. There's something wrong with his worldview, and he falls from grace, essentially. He drops out. I mean, he's still a teacher, but he's trying to cut back on everything, and he spends his nights with a gun under his pillow, trying to get drunk and not being able to, and eventually he comes to the notice of a very mysterious intelligence agency, an intelligence agency within an intelligence agency who then taps him because they want him to go back to Iraq to help them figure out what's going on with all the new chatter they're hearing about a new terror group that's growing up. And that has a that's sort of a blasphemous organization that's uniting all sorts of disparate groups around it. And they're, you know, the U.S. intelligence is extremely nervous about this group. They don't know what it is, but it's not the Islamic State. It's something potentially much worse. And they want Angel to go out and figure out what's going on. And that's how the the novel basically sets off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a really intriguing setting, especially how it ties in and parallels real world events, just like 
you open the book with a quote from BBC News and the very true story of the Baghdad Museum being ransacked during the events in Iraq. And I've had a lot of guests talk about this as one of the real reasons we even went there from Joseph Farrell, who suggests the Middle East is where weapons of mass destruction, quote unquote, from an ancient war could potentially be buried to others who talk about us finding clues to humanity's origins in these cuneiform tablets. And it's intriguing. And you got to admit that stuff does sound more valuable than oil, but it makes a great backdrop for a novel. But how big a part of reality do you think these elements could be? Well, I, I think they're they're essential to understand. I mean, we're I think a lot of people have this understanding that the Middle East is kind of monolithic. You know, it's a bunch of Arabs, right? <laughs> they all speak the same language. They all have the same religion and they hate us. Mm -hmm. And it's far more complicated than that, far more complicated than that. In fact, it's a much richer tapestry. There's all sorts of cults and sects in the Middle East and in Central Asia, which I point out in the book to the point where you might want to throw up your hands and say, enough. <laughs> but there's a lot of different groups. And it's important to understand that there's this tension between all these various groups who all have a piece of the puzzle as far as they're concerned. And the Yazidi is one group. And the Yazidi were targeted, you know, they were targeted for destruction in 2014 by the Islamic State. I mean, it's a, a genocide that's ongoing against these people who are universally considered to be devil worshippers. Mm. Crowley mentions them in his work. Lovecraft mentions them in his work. A guy called William Seabrook was the man we have to blame for all of this because he started repeating all of these stories about the Yazidi worshipping Satan. It's more complicated than that, as usual, but Seabrook made this story and everybody started to believe it was literally true the way Seabrook had said it. And Seabrook was a friend of Crowley. It goes back to all of that period of the 1920s. So people started hearing about this group of devil worshippers in the Middle East. And to the Muslims, they are devil worshippers. And to the Christians, they're devil worshippers. They're the most besieged people in that part of the world, probably, are the Yazidi. And their women and children have been taken into slavery. You know, the men have been massacred. It's, it's a horrible thing. And yet... They may have a piece of the puzzle as to who we are and where we came from. Right. The Yazidis say they're descended from the Sumerians. You know, they insist they're the oldest people on the planet, hmm. which is hyperbole, you know, to an extent. But at least what they're doing is they're showing their connection back to the most ancient times. Their coat of arms has cuneiform script on it. They're trying to emphasize the fact that they're the original people. They're what's left of ancient Sumer, which is interesting because the Sumerians themselves have disappeared. They sort of faded out of existence with the Babylonian takeovers, the Akkadians, and who were Semitic people. The Sumerians were not Semitic. They were not Arabs. They were probably closer to Iranians ethnically, and the Yazidis are too. I mean, they speak a Kurdish language, but they may be more ethnically related to Kurds. But the long reason I'm going to all of this is because we're talking about ancient origins. We're talking about the most ancient origin, which is you know, the Middle East, Mesopotamia, is the cradle of civilization, as we always call it. And it's probably older than we understand. And most of the cuneiform texts that we've taken out of the Middle East have not been translated yet. The vast majority have not been. There are very few cuneiform experts who are out there with access to this material. So there's a lot, there's a mountain of material that hasn't been translated. We don't know what that material is. And there's much more besides still out there in the deserts and in the the swamps of Mesopotamia, particularly up in Mosul and near the ancient town of Nineveh, where some of the most fabulous finds were made. Mosul is extremely important to the world as far as the repository of ancient artifacts and ancient texts. Mosul is extremely important, and that's where 
the Yazidis themselves were based just a little bit north of Mosul. So they're connected to that region for sure. I mean, they're 100% right where that's concerned. And, you know, they have very strange religious things. They're not similar at all to Islam or Christianity or Judaism. There's like elements of all of that, but also elements of Zoroastrianism. And there's a serpent symbol that's, you know, always there next to the entrances to their shrines. Mm. Uh, There's the peacock angel, which uh, they call basically their version of God or God is kind of a problematic term in Yazidi religion, but let's just say their version of God is this peacock angel. But they also have a shaitan, which they believe is a fallen angel, the way everybody else believes in it, Satan. However, they feel that Satan will be the first angel to be welcomed back into heaven at the last days. Hmm. And so they will follow Satan in his entourage as Satan enters heaven when he's forgiven by God. So there's this very complex religious system that the Yazidi have as well. So there's all of this, you know, and that's just one group in Iraq. That's just one. I mean, there are so many other groups that have bits and pieces of ancient Christianity, ancient Judaism. There's a group out in Iraq that believes that John the Baptist was the real Messiah, not Jesus. Hmm. And their influence on Freemasonry and the Knights Templar was very profound. You know, the Freemasons celebrate the John the Baptist days as the holy days in Freemasonry, you know, not Christmas and Easter. Mm-hmm. It's more the John the Baptist holidays, festivals are important. There's this idea that John the Baptist was the real Messiah, that Jesus was just one. I mean, Baptist John the Baptist baptized Jesus, which essentially meant that he was the leader and Jesus was the follower. Yeah. So there's this whole idea there. There's a whole group that still exists there that still believes that. <laughs> and there's Nestorian Christians. There's Assyrian Christians. There's all kinds of other groups in that part of the world that are being decimated now by the Islamic State. So they're wiping out the traces of the origins, which is something that these, this type of fanatic will do. I mean, they want to destroy the Sphinx and the pyramids as well. Mm-hmm. There's this idea this is all, you know, uh, haram. This is all not kosher, <laughs> right. in a way of speaking. So all this has to be destroyed. We have to wipe all of this out. There's this concept that we have to make the world clean. And that would have appealed, that concept would have appealed to Lovecraft a great deal from a fictional point of view. You know, here's a group that wants to cleanse the earth. And to do that, they have to wipe out all the pagan remnants. Lovecraft might have been kind of sympathetic to that point of view, or at least the characters in his stories might have been. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there is this idea that perhaps there's a philosophy, a text, uh, artifacts in Mesopotamia in today's Iraq that could be weaponized, that could be used to create something different, to create something new, that maybe the Islamic State or any of the other fanatic groups in that part of the world would want to find whatever this was and then deep six it, you know, completely hide it or destroy it so that nobody could find it because it would be a threat to them. The way the Catholic Church felt for a long time about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes. You know, and the Nag Hammadi text. And maybe we don't want this material to come out. It's going to ruin our our hegemony over, you know, our, our, our power, our control over our people. Maybe there's something in there that we really don't want to be shown. The Nag Hammadi texts, for sure, the Gnostic texts are a direct problem for the Catholic Church. But they're able to put that off to the side and say, well, that's Gnosticism. That's not really us. But the Dead Sea Scroll is another story. Mm-hmm. And some of the material in there is potentially dangerous where the church is concerned. So I could see where groups like Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or the Islamic State would think that some of this material is dangerous because it may call into question their entire worldview. Right. Muhammad, the prophet, was a descendant of the Quraysh tribe. 
he belonged to that very tribe that was in control of the Kaaba in in Mecca, the black stone that you have to make a pilgrimage to once in your lifetime if you're a Muslim. His tribe was in charge of that. They were in charge of the idols, the 360 idols that were there until he threw them out. But the Quraysh tribe also came from Kutha in the Middle East, from the city that was supposedly the gateway to the underworld. Right. His people came from there. When Muhammad's forces went into Iraq, went into Mesopotamia, and they went to the ancient city of Kutha, there were hymns and songs written saying that his people were coming back, the Quraysh were coming back to retake what was theirs. So there's this very strong connection between the origins of Islam and Mesopotamia and Kutha and the gate to the underworld. So, yeah, I could see if there was something there in the Baghdad Museum or in the museums up in Mosul or just in private collections in the Middle East that could reinforce these ideas, that would be a serious, dangerous blow to the fanatics of Islam. Mm-hmm. Man, those are all great points. And you touched on so many questions I had for you, which is great because time is just flying by. But I definitely was curious about those parallels between the campaigns of the Holy Roman Empire against pagans and Gnostics and the parallels to what's going on with the Yazidi today. And you mentioned uh, Kutha, and I thought that was interesting because it also has kind of that phonetic connection to Cthulhu in a way. But it's all really interesting because in the occult world, a major theme seems to be the quest for old grimoires and this idea that we've lost our magical way and that old texts or traditions might unlock greater power or insights than newer ones, or even that we lost the human story itself. So we look back to places like ancient Egypt or finds like the Nag Hammadi Library for insights in both areas. And here we have a group of people living today whose traditions seem to be potentially just what a lot of people might be looking for in a way, and they're being exterminated. Yeah, precisely. One of the interesting things about the Yazidi is that they have two books, and one of them is called the Black Book. And people who have been through that part of the world and who've talked to the Yazidi, they claim they have copies of that book and they publish translations of the book. That's very problematic. I mean, some of the original texts of the Black Book were in the possession of a very famous forger somebody who was making a lot of money on the side selling antiquities, some of which were real, some of which were not. And so there's a lot of controversy over whether or not the books, the texts that we have are the genuine Yazidi texts, because the Yazidi are notoriously afraid of outsiders, afraid of foreigners. I mean, they've been very insular for so long. They don't intermarry. You cannot convert to Yazidism. You cannot become a Yazidi through conversion. That's not allowed. That's not permitted which means that basically Yazidi have to marry Yazidi and you know raise Yazidi children. And so whatever secrets there are stay within that very tight-knit community. So by exterminating these people, we are losing. If, if Forget even the humanitarian aspect of it, which is extreme. We're also losing contact. We're losing contact with that tradition. We need to know what they know or as much as they're willing to tell us. And why should they now tell us if we're sitting back idly by while they're being exterminated, right? Right. So, you know, we have to make up our minds at some point what is valuable, what what we should defend, and what is worth defending. I'm glad that we did. We got involved in the fight against the Islamic State because of the Yazidi. People don't really remember this, but when their mountain was being besieged, when all the Yazidi were on top of Mount Sinjar, which is their, their sacred mountain, and the Islamic State forces were massing against them to destroy them, that was finally the point at which the United States said, okay, we're going to send in you know, air support and all the rest of it to start fighting the Islamic State because of the Yazidi. 
which I found when it happened stunning because until that time, there was no mainstream you know, recognition of the Yazidi. You didn't hear that word mentioned anywhere. That was something you found in Crowley, you know, or you found in occult literature, or you found in, in the sort of New Age stuff you know, that was going up around you know, Islamic mysticism or Middle Eastern mysticism and that sort of thing. It was a very rare term, and suddenly it's being used by the State Department you know, as the reason why we have to go in against the Islamic State. So I found that to be fascinating. Here was the Yazidi that Lovecraft was writing about, this hideous devil-worshipping cult, and now we're sending air support to try to defend them. And so the whole thing became, I, I didn't know what world I was living in. You know, suddenly, <laughs> suddenly everything, you, what you thought was fantasy and, you know, something arcane and something mysterious suddenly was becoming mainstream. Mm -hmm. You know, something that we were actually going to send troops to defend people that everybody had been trying to kill for the last 2000 years, roughly. People that had been hated and despised by Saddam Hussein, by some of the more fanatic Islamic sects, by some of the Christians and some, you know, some of the other groups out there. They, held them in, in terrible suspicion, these people. And now suddenly we're out doing whatever we can, hopefully, to save them or to save as many as we can. So it's an interesting reversal of what happened, of what Lovecraft was writing about in the 1920s and what actually is taking place 100 years later. But yeah, this idea that we're in Iraq for the oil, I think that ship sailed a long time ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I think the oil is no longer as much of an issue anymore as it used to be in the first place for the United States. But also, I think that the oil is a sideshow at the moment. At least the oil in Iraq is a sideshow. A lot of the oil fields have been destroyed. Some of them are back online. But the Islamic State's trying to sell the oil, you know, to raise money for itself, like they were selling the artifacts also from the museums. All of this stuff is, is very messy and very complicated. But I think the real issue for us in that part of the world is this is where we all trace our origins, our, our origins as a civilization, not as homo sapiens, but our origins as a civilized people. We trace it back to that part of the world. That's where it started, even before Egypt. You know, So we know that this area contains something that's extremely valuable to us and extremely necessary. And the people who've lived there for thousands of years are the people who know better than we do what it is that's so valuable there. They may not even know that they know. But they do know. They have access. They know where the, the shrines are. They know where the underground stuff is. They know where the texts are. They know what the stories that have been passed down generation by generation are. They know this better than we do. And we're allowing them to be slaughtered. And that's, that is really terrible for us in general, for the human race, you know, in general. We need to know what that's all about. We need to know what they know. Amen. And this is kind of a, a sidetrack or a tangent, but when it comes to esoteric or magical themes that I get to talk to about with guests, it's often very much in regards to either secret societies, Aleister Crowley, or Egypt. But I'm starting to feel like voodoo or the Afro-Caribbean traditions should get a little more attention, and they do in Lovecraft's work, but can you give us any insight into the magic of those traditions or how they might be different from others that we're more familiar with? Sure. I mean, there's Crowley's weakness in all of this. His own book of the law said, you know, you're supposed to teach the Obia and the Wanga, right? They're references to Afro-Caribbean religion, and Crowley just never went there. Hmm. So Kenneth Grant picked up the mantle there a little bit. And of course, Michel Berthiaud, based in Chicago, was very much involved in voodoo and trying to relate Afro-Caribbean religion to Thelema and to, you know, modern esotericism and all of that. And 
it's another fascinating aspect of research because we are trained to think of religions in terms of scriptures and in terms of texts. It took us a long time in the West to realize that not all texts are written down. You can have an oral text as well. And because they're not written down, we ignored them. <laughs> you know, it was like this blind spot that we had. But for instance, in uh, Yoruba religion, you have Ifa, and you have what's known as the Table of Ifa, which is their divination system. And it's extremely complex. It's much more complex than the I Ching. It's four times more complex than the I Ching, and not a word was ever written down by the Yoruba diviners. It was all memorized. Huh. They took years and years of training to memorize every one of those 256 Odu, as they call it, 256 binary figures, dots and dashes, basically, 256 different ones. They had to memorize them, memorize the deity that was associated with each one, with the colors and all the other correspondences and the rituals and the stories and traditions with each of 256 figures. Hmm. And it was only when they had mastered that could they be a practitioner of Ifa. This kind of complexity and richness was ignored by the West for a very long time. And yet you can go to Santeros, uh, you know, Santeria priests or priestesses, Santeros in, in Miami down here in, in Florida or anywhere, any major city, and they'll be throwing seashells, right? These cowrie shells, which is the descendant of that system. You know, it's basically the same system, just a simplified version of it. And that's just one aspect, that complex system. And it's a, it's a very complex system. And it's 256 figures which then relate to 256 squares on the Enochian tablets, hmm. the angelic, the watchtowers. Also, we're going to give us 256, except for the cross in the middle, which is the, you know, the 20 squares uh, tablet of union. But the 256, those are all the elemental squares of the four tablets. And if you start to see, as I have in my own writing, and I'm working on a much larger book that would bring all this together, there's a consistency behind it. There is something that's very, very deep that was a treasure in Africa, you know, and unknown outside of Africa due to the fact that we just felt these people were superstitious and since they didn't have any writing, they couldn't have anything of value. Mm -hmm. So the Afro-Caribbean material to me is, if anything, more fascinating because it's real living religion, but it's also real living magic. You know, the two have not been separated in, mm -hmm. in Afro-Caribbean religion. So Voodoo, Santeria, Palo Mayombe, Candomblé, all the other groups, this represents something very real, something very alive, something that pertains to a human being living in the world today as far as you know, realistic expectations and concerns. But there's also the very deep spiritual element and a mystical element as well. So I've spent some time among these groups and among people who are practitioners of those groups. And I've had at one point someone actually using the table of Ifa someone who didn't know me very well then, this was many years ago, casting the coins or the shells, rather, on the on the wooden table. It's a circular table with some of the figures carved into it. And so accurately representing not only my present circumstances, but understanding the past very specifically, and then the future, you know, all in one time, at one moment. And I asked, at the end of it, I was sort of shocked that this person was able to do that. And I had been to fortune tellers and astrologers and everything else, you know, so I wasn't a stranger to this. But this was sort of uncanny. Hmm. And so I asked the guy, how did this happen? And he said, well, it's nothing to do with psychic ability at all. He said, I'm not psychic. I have no special abilities. It's the system itself 
that's psychic, essentially. The system itself is spooky. And that sort of changed my thinking on a lot of this, you know. <laughs> so I thought, oh, okay, let me start looking at these systems. And so the Afro-Caribbean systems are very rich and very, very powerful. They're very messy from our point of view. There's just too many gods and goddesses and, and too much stuff going on. And there's too many herbs and materials that we don't understand or know and all kinds of things. I mean, it's, it's an entire culture. And for us just to sort of make arbitrary judgments on it is, is wrong. I mean, you're, you're missing most of it, 90% of it. But it still is worthwhile looking. There is the Afro-Caribbean stuff I, I bring up in the Lovecraft Code. It's going to be expanded greatly in the second volume, the sequel to Lovecraft Code, which is called Dunwich or Dunwich which will be coming out around this time next year. So you'll have more of the New Orleans aspect of these things. I'll go into the Afro-Caribbean much more to try to show how that's related to the, the cults in, the, in Central Asia and the, and the Middle East, what they have in common, uh, some of the basic things that all occult groups and secret societies have in common. So, you know, there's more of that to come in, in the next volume. Mm. That's awesome, man. Yeah, definitely a lot of mining for truth probably left to do there for anyone who's sick of rehashing Greek and Roman mythology. I mean, there's a lot of more people in the world. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, just to get back to the Lovecraft Code, just like in Sinister Forces, the nexus of names and places and dates is a huge part of this book and where a lot of the truth contained in it lies. And uh, I guess a good example of this might be the elements that take place in Florida or this uh, bizarre German guy named Carl, right? Oh, yeah. He's one of my favorite characters, man. This this guy, I mean, I've been to Key West a number of times and stuff, and, you know, you, you hear stories, and eventually people have written about him a little bit. This is a real person, Carl Tanzler, or, well, he has had a number of different names, but Carl Tanzler, we'll call him that for now. Carl was a German who is famous in Key West because at one point he fell in love with a Cuban woman, a very young Cuban woman, Maria, who died of tuberculosis. He tried to save her. He was not a doctor necessarily. He worked at a marine hospital in Key West. He was a, an x-ray technician, mostly. We're not even sure where he got that training. But anyway, he, he fell in love with this woman and he tried to heal her his own way. And of course, it just didn't work. It didn't happen. She died. He built her a mausoleum in Key West, a beautiful mausoleum that he, he interred her. The family sort of allowed him to do this. He interred her in this mausoleum. But what the family didn't know was that the mausoleum was specially constructed. It was like something out of, uh, I don't know, Dr. Fives Rides Again or something. I mean, this is a weird situation where he had this woman hooked up to all sorts of tubes and devices. He was trying to maintain the body's integrity for as long as possible so that he could bring her back to life. As far as he was concerned, she wasn't exactly dead. And he didn't believe that death really took place the way we think it does. So he was trying to keep this body alive, this woman's body alive, for as long as possible. Hmm. And there were rumors that he had a telephone system put into the mausoleum so she could call him, you know, if she came out of her death trance or whatever it was she was in. <laughs> so he was doing all of this stuff. And eventually he was found out. They were going to come and break open the mausoleum. He took the body out. He, he put it uh, on a kind of a little wagon and he dragged it over to his house and he was building an airplane in his backyard or in the parking lot at one point of the of the hospital he was going to fly her you know to some south sea island once she was alive again i mean he was doing all this very deliberately they found out about it eventually they arrested him they tried to get him for stealing a corpse or defiling a corpse but the statute of limitations ran out 
he was getting all these letters from women who wanted to marry him because they thought it was such a, a romantic thing that he did. And eventually he died sort of in obscurity. He went back. Uh, he actually had a family up in Zephyr Hills, Florida. So he eventually left Key West and went up there. So that would have been the end of it, except, you know, knowing me, I had to pull out a few more threads. And it turns out that he actually wrote himself his own account of this whole thing in one of Raymond Palmer's magazines, you know, the, the weird tales sort of uh, amazing stories kind of magazines, the same editor that published the Kenneth Arnold stuff, you know, yeah. about Maury Island and all that. So here's here's our guy, Carl Tanzler, writing this entire story about his entire life and then, you know, trying to save Maria, all the steps that he took and Maria coming to life briefly here and then, you know, opening her eyes or saying something. I mean, he's going this entire story. It's like two, I think it was in two installments. And it was a very, very long, or more than that, very long story. And I, I had to read through the entire thing because he talks about his early days. And he grew up in Germany. He was in the South Pacific or in Southeast Asia at the outbreak of World War I. In Australia, he was put into a prisoner of war camp because he was a German national. He spent his time there. But his stories was that he kept on seeing this woman, this figment, this ghost in Europe, you know, in various castles that he thought that that was his soulmate or something. And she was evidently an ancient alchemist of his family going back several generations, according to his story. And then he claimed that as he was growing up, he befriended many famous paranormal experts at the time, parapsychologists around the turn of the century. As I found out later, he was making that up. But the names that he used were real. They were real individuals that I was able to trace. And then he he died in India or was believed to have died in India. He came to in the morgue just in time. You know, He had all these stories, all these wild stories. Hmm. And he was an organist. He built his own organ that he was playing in Australia in the prison camp or something. All kinds of stories, you know, all kinds of wild stuff. Eventually, he goes back to Germany in the 1920s. Germany, of course, is in ruins after World War I. All kinds of things are falling apart. He's there during the rise of the Nazi party. Now, that much we know is true, or we believe it's true anyway, from his own account. He takes off from Germany and goes to Cuba just for a couple of days because he's really on his way to Key West, to Florida. He has family now in Florida. So he makes his way to Florida, stays in Key West, gets a job as an x-ray technician, at the Marine Hospital, the U.S. Marine Hospital in Key West. And from there, the rest is history. So as I'm looking at the dates and places, I realize that he's in Key West at the same time that Lovecraft visits Key West. Boom. So Lovecraft goes down to Key West, and he wants to get a boat to Cuba. He doesn't have enough money to get the boat to Cuba, so he stays in Key West for a couple of days. I have absolutely no evidence at all that Lovecraft and Carl Tanzler ever met but Key West was a small town in those days, you know, yeah. and he he was an eccentric. They were both eccentric characters. Hemingway was actually in town the same time. Hemingway was buying his famous house there, which is still there in Key West. There was a lot of, you know, odd people. It was an artist, artistic kind of group that was living down there, starting to develop a kind of a, a bohemian sort of community. And Lovecraft was down there and Carl was down there. And Lovecraft had written this series of stories called Herbert West Reanimator about a guy who's trying to reanimate a corpse. And here's Carl trying to reanimate a corpse. So I put the two together and I said, wouldn't it be interesting if Carl and Lovecraft met two eccentrics, you know, two sort of uh, people who are outcasts, they're outsiders in their own worlds, and both with pretensions to science, you know, what if they actually met? What would they have talked about? What would they have discussed? And even more than that, 
based on Carl Tanzler's background, based on the things that he did, based on the fact that he was imprisoned in a prisoner of war camp, a lot of things that looked a little suspicious to me, I started to ask the question, what if Carl Tanzler was an agent of the German government? Hmm. And it was only much later that I found out that Carl Tanzler actually was receiving money from Germany <laughs> on a monthly basis. He was being paid for something. Wow. So all of that is true. So the only you know fictional aspect of this is that he met Lovecraft and they talked about raising the dead. But everything else I thought was true. So I had Carl Tanzler as the guy who was the one who killed George Angel, Professor George Angel, on the docks at Newport, uh, at, at, yeah, the docks in Providence from the Newport Ferry, which is in the Call of Cthulhu. So I put all of that together and, you know, I, I bring him together with George Sylvester Vierick, who was the German who was basically in charge of agents in the United States at that time for the German government who was also a friend of Aleister Crowley. I mean, all of these people knew each other. It's fascinating. And they were all somehow involved with each other. So I just made I made a couple of connections that really weren't there so, <laughs> in, order to, in order to move the story along. But if people are, are interested in history, and especially this kind of offbeat history, they're going to find a lot of places to start in the Lovecraft Code because most of what's written there as far as specific names, and as I say, dates and places, times, that's all genuine. That's all real. These, the cults that I mentioned are, with one possible exception, real. <laughs> so, you know, everything else, all the, the terminology, the foreign languages, the terms, that's again, all real. So there's a lot there that's real, you know, and the, the fantasy is only stitching these all together into a narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. And that is a nice little loop. I'm glad I got to ask you about that. And so, I got to switch gears a little bit before we run out of time here, but I've heard you mention a potential crossover between uh, this book that you just wrote and your Secret Machines project with Tom DeLonge. Can you elaborate on that project at all and how it could be related? Well, the Secret Machine project, as I think as everyone knows now, is, is focused on the UFO phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So I have done a lot in the last couple of years of research in that particular subject, spoken to a lot of people, done a lot of um, of thinking on my own as well, and analyzing the phenomenon from different angles and different points of view in ways that I think haven't been done before or haven't been done enough before. So there is a kind of crossover because some of the themes in the Lovecraft Code and some of the themes in Secret Machines, uh, we're talking about the same thing. But I can't really go into more detail on secret machines. I'm sworn to secrecy <laughs> on this, especially because of the last uh, couple of months' events. So I'm being very careful about that. But there will be, however, I am told, next month there's going to be a kind of press release that's going to talk about it, I believe. That may change as well because things are moving pretty fast around here. But we're looking at, you know, the book is coming out in March, as everyone knows. So we're going to be, be talking about it probably at some point next year and talking about it a bit more and talking about its origins and what we're, we're, we're doing. But there's three volumes coming out of my contribution to Secret Machines. And volume one is the first one, uh, obviously, coming out in March. And maybe it, as we get closer to the date, I can be more specific. But uh, Lovecraft Code, let's look at it this way, is, is a fictional narrative, obviously, but it's based a great deal on facts and things that actually happened. But Secret Machines is going to be based entirely on fact, entirely nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. And you're right. I guess it does get kind of sticky with current events. If you're talking about the Clinton Network and Podesta and these people who had an interest in UFOs and 
uh, also speculation, but I've had some guests suggest that the reason that they lost the election is because uh, they talked a little too boldly about unlocking secrets of Area 51 or Roswell and potentially someone with more authority said, mm, uh, no, you're not. You're not going to be doing that. And, uh, you know, obviously, who knows about that? But interesting. It's interesting. It's it's worth speculating about for a while anyway. I mean, it's, you know, I think that administration would have come the closest to opening the lid and all of this stuff, uh, just from you know what I've been hearing and seeing, because they have been kind of open about it. But there isn't a huge UFO demographic out there. <laughs> That's true. I don't know who they were talking to. You know, as far as if this was like politically designed to create more votes, I doubt that was going to work. No. But but I think they were just talking about the fact they would just like to know. And we know that uh, John Podesta, of course, has been open about this. I mean, this is no mystery about it. He would like to know as well. So I don't know. I, I, we're not giving up on this, on on disclosure, you know, one way or the other. I think, you know, there's – I think it's necessary, but it may not happen the way we think. And, it, you know, again, we're getting into realms of speculation and – I'll save that for later. <laughs> sure, sure. The last thing I wanted to kind of ask you about secret machines, and you can just give no comment if you want, but uh, you do cast a wide net because, you know, your background seems to be more focused in occult or unseen forces in a lot of your work. And to me, that kind of insinuated the possibility that the approach in secret machines might get into more how those areas relate to UFOs rather than aliens from space. And I noticed that secret is spelled with a K, and I thought maybe that could be a clue to the magic connection because it's also sometimes spelled that way. Any thoughts? Okay. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> well, I am I am anxious to to have that come out. So one one other thing, another kind of random one, but I've heard you describe the Lovecraft view in jest as the elder gods wanting to make the planet great again, which right. is funny. <laughs> I love that. But uh, when it comes to current events, do you see any sinister forces at play? Oh, I mean, too much to, to enumerate, probably. I mean, I feel like I'm living in one of my books now, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, it's crazy. And it, not necessarily sinister forces, maybe one of the other ones. <laughs> so I, I, I feel that I'm, I'm, you know, it's in one way it's it's fascinating because you're actually in the midst of an historical period that could turn out to be a disaster, but you're you're in the midst of it. I mean, you're seeing it all around you. You know, you don't know exactly what's going to fall out from all of this, but at the same time, I see the strains that I've been writing about for the last twenty, thirty years. You know, sort of moving into place. I mean, things I've been researching since Watergate, you know, uh, suddenly manifesting in, in different ways in certain ways. I see this, you know, a cauldron, a bubbling cauldron of all of this. It's like we're now, we're now going to start talking about all of it. You know, it's like everything is okay to talk about now. Every conspiracy theory you can think of is fair game. You know, let's get it all out. Let's talk about everything. Whereas before it was, this was not mainstream. You know, this kind of pursuit, especially mine. I mean, I was writing I, probably to a very small audience, but I was trying to to verify everything and, you know, footnote everything and source everything meticulously and to build up to, you know, this kind of ongoing revelation. And now I see people just sort of, you know, vomiting it all over the place. <laughs> it's like it's weird. It's like, you know, it's like living in, you know, a copy of Sinister Forces and not knowing how it's going to turn out because, you know, I'm desperately switching, flipping pages here <laughs> to see what the end is. I mean, it's it's like that. There's so much of that I that I wrote about 
you know, from a sort of a distance, sort of academic kind of objective point of view, suddenly is, you know, is all around me. I'm, I'm wading through it now mm -hmm. and trying to figure out what am I supposed to make of all of this right now. So, yeah, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating, if nothing else, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, cheers to that. And to relate current events back to this fish or amphibious god archetype, have you looked into this idea that the frog-headed Egyptian deity Kek influenced the election through the Pepe the Frog <laughs> meme? I mean, it's weird, but it's got a very Lavendish thread of synchronicities that really make you think twice. Yeah, I kind of looked at it. You know, I mean, obviously people were mentioning it to me and, and trying to make me weigh in on it one way or the other. <laughs> of course. And I'm looking and thinking, what the hell am I supposed to make <laughs> out of this? So, again, it's one of those things like the Khazars. I'm kind of pulling back until I get more information. but it is. It is bizarre. I mean, it's totally bizarre. Where did it come from? Was that one of the 4chan things originally? I don't know. It, yes. yes. Was it? Okay, there you go. Well, all Which, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, just the things uh, in a nutshell that I think are interesting is that, of course, they say uh, Keck is an Egyptian personification of primordial chaos. Trump yep. would be the chaos candidate. Yep. 4chan is a chaos environment. And of all the little synchronicities, the, oh, well, also both candidates mentioned it. Of all the things going on in the election, to have this little stupid frog meme reach the heights of Hillary commenting on it and Trump retweeting it. I mean, if you're going to talk about influence, it made it to the top on both sides. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. One, one uh, last little synchronicity. Apparently, it seems to be the earliest one. Uh, back in the 90s, there was a PC game, Trump's Real Estate Tycoon, where the player goes up against Trump in a, a Monopoly-style game of real estate trying to bankrupt the Trump empire. And uh, at the beginning of the game, you get to choose between just a few fake corporations to go up against Trump. And one of those corporations is Pepe, and its symbol is a winding road. And <laughs> I don't know, but it's interesting, man. Oh, it is for sure. I mean, but, you know, I think everybody's taken that and they're running with it. So they probably don't need, don't need a lot of input from me on this. I think they're doing a good job on their own. So I'm going to stay off off the radar on that one for a while until I can get a better feel for it. Fair. And that's kind of the nature of these synchronicities is they're so open to interpretation. And skeptics can look at all of it and say, this is all bullshit. Yeah. But when you stack them up. It gets harder and harder. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Man. All right. Well, I could bounce weird questions off you all day, but that does pretty much get us to the finish line here. I really appreciate it. You are one of the great minds of our time. Before I cut you loose, would you like to give the people any added information about the book, your other projects, or how people can further scratch the Lavenda itch? <laughs> that sounds obscene. <laughs> uh, well, of course, all my books are obviously available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble sites and things like that. Um, and I have PeterLavenda.com. I've been posting recently on there on, on some recent events. And my, one of my latest is on the alternative media, but also Colonia Digni. Documents were just released, uh, a day or two ago about that weird place I visited in Chile with all the Nazis and all the rest of it. And more information has come to light about it. So I posted about that on PeterLavenda.com. It's useful to look at. And for my sins, I'm now on Facebook. Yes, I'm on Facebook. So you can find me there as well. Uh, try not to be too, too, too mean or too evil. Thank you very much. <laughs> Fair enough. Awesome. Well, always a pleasure. I always learn something new from you, and you really make me feel like I have a lot more learning to do for myself. So thanks again, and keep doing what you do. Sorry about that. <laughs> You're quite welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. You got it. Take care. Peter Lavenda, people. All right. How happy are we? Last show of the year. One of my favorite guests. 
New material for the higher side chats, most definitely. Can't argue with that. I really love the spin on the Middle Eastern conflict. I find it very intriguing to think that because it's a hotbed for esoteric knowledge, that is really the underlying motivation that fuels a lot of these issues and interference in the region. It's very provocative, right? That we talk about the great loss of Native American magical traditions and we wax poetic about forgotten Gnostics. And this is happening right here in the modern world and we're missing it. Definitely something to think about. I was a little nervous preparing for a show based around a novel, but it went really, really well in the end, I think. I'm glad I got to ask him about the idea that major alien or cryptid-centric events could be more based on ritual workings. Kudos to Chris Knowles for making such a great case in regards to Roswell. I think that was in the Plus show. But, of course, we go deeper in the second hour. We talk about so much more. Various ways entity influence could manifest. Synchronicities. Afro-Caribbean magic traditions. All kinds of good stuff. And hopefully he'll come back to talk about secret machines when the time is right. But hopefully you all had a great year despite all the internet memes about how terrible it was. It was one of the best years of my life on a personal level, I gotta say. I got engaged, did some traveling, reached a new level of security with my little independent show here. And I think the key is to stop thinking about events as things that happen to you and instead realize you truly do make everything happen. You never had a shitty job you didn't apply for. You never got trapped in debt you didn't sign up for. Nobody got a shitty body they didn't feed junk to. And if you didn't like 2016, think about all the hours of media you might have consumed, all the time wasted on social platforms. Those are choices and how we spend our time. So if you feel behind, go out there and make life happen. Don't just wait for it to come to you. That's what I'd say. It's a much more empowering way to look at life. And of course, what works for me won't work for everyone. Either way, you know I love you guys. Thanks for a great year of support. I hope you got everything you'd want out of this podcast and more. And we got plenty of weird roads to walk down in 2017, I'm sure. So I'll see you on the other side. Drink a little drink, smoke a little smoke, stay safe and have a happy new year. Your move, Middle East meddlers and Yazidi secret seekers. Your fucking move.
guys. Thanks for listening to the first hour of the Higher Side Chats podcast with me, Greg Carlwood. If you don't know, there is a second hour to all the episodes we do around here. Generally, we're able to get a lot deeper into the topics and ideas that a guest is about. So if you enjoyed what you've heard from THC for free, consider signing up at thehiresidechatsplus.com to get the second hour of the five shows I put together each month. I never really wanted to be a paid subscriber podcast, but I really hate the idea of spending airtime promoting some product that's completely unrelated and telling you the best way to support the show is to buy an audiobook or new underwear by mail or something crazy like that. So instead, if you like the show, double your time with it for five bucks a month and let's cut out all the other shit. It's half the price of a movie ticket and you get at least an extra five hours of show a month. Collectively, it keeps us stable and it frees me from wasting your time with anything but the show you came to listen to. It's really the only way for an independent, one-man show to make it, and I do what I can so that it's worth your while. Since we started this, I've always tried to use the subscriptions to improve the podcast and make signups more advantageous. It started with just a second hour for the main show, but now we've got a nice forum going where people can get deeper in conversation about the episodes with other listeners submit a candidate in the guest request thread, or share their own personal projects to get out of the soul-crushing 9-to-5 cog-in-the-wheel life on the entrepreneur's thread. The forum and the plus comments are always the first places I try to go for listener engagement, but it does get harder as the show gets more popular. Because of that, there's also a direct messaging feature that you can use to reach me through the plus site also. But beyond the form, if you like any of the music I've used for THC, most of it I've hired artists to make, and I provide it all as free downloads to Plus members too. So if you like a particular song you've heard close the show out recently, come get the MP3. I should also mention that if you don't like the idea of paying $5 recurring every month, I get that. You can buy three months, six months, or a year up front and just be done with it. I have plenty of listeners who send checks and money orders to the P.O. Box too, I try to make it as easy for people as I can, and you can read more about it on the sign-up page. Also, be sure to check out the FAQ help page on the Plus site if you have any questions or concerns about how to listen to a password-protected show on your devices. I've highlighted a lot of great solutions, and one of those would be the iPhone app that just recently hit the Apple App Store. A super kind and talented listener made it for us, and you can use it to stream or download either the free or the Plus show. If you're on Android, I'd use Pocket Casts or Podcast Addict and subscribe to the feed manually that way. I also try to throw in occasional bonus shows or Q&A shows, and I've got a few other weird ideas I might get to try out soon. But I give you all I can for five bucks, and I hope you'll at least give it a shot if you've listened to a few free shows and you find them unique or valuable. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm just one of them. But if you have any questions, concerns, or comments about any of this, please get in touch with us at the Higher Side Chats team at gmail.com. I also wanted to plug the Higher Side newsletter I'm going to be putting out totally free for anyone who wants to sign up at the main internet website for the show, thehiresidechats.com. You can also get on that email list through the Higher Side Chats Facebook page. There's a button there as well. But the reason I'm doing this is because I get tons and tons of emails after a show goes up asking me about how I feel about a particular guest or topic, and the wrap-up isn't always the best place to do that, especially if I have anything negative to say. Sometimes the dust needs to settle, sometimes I need to hear feedback from you guys first. There are a lot of factors, but I usually have something to communicate to you, and I just don't get to do it. So on the first of the month, I plan to send out a little newsletter with my thoughts about the five shows the previous month, and talk to you about anything else that's on my mind or that's going on. 
And what's probably most enticing is that I'm going to give you some insight into at least one guest I have coming up in the month, which people have been begging for some posted schedule for a long time. I personally think I'd like the surprise. But sign up for the Higher Side newsletter. It's free. It comes out on the first of the month, and I won't waste your time with any other emails. And that's it. I appreciate you listening. I try to give alternative ideas and guests a fair shake on a high-quality podcast, expose some deep-level conspiracies without the yelling, and I hope to offer some inspiration that even though the system relentlessly suggests you should follow their blueprint to mediocrity, you can do your own thing and live a much happier life despite all the negativity in the world. So go ahead and treat yourself. Isn't it about time? <laughs>